for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's teaching text comes from Matthew 2, 1-11. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After, the, <clears throat> after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the, the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When, the state, when they saw the star... They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures, treasuries and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, happy Gregorian New Year, you know. Gregorian New Year. Uh, the Gregorian calendar is the one we've been using for the last 500 years. Uh, it's, it was a, an update from the Julian calendar, which we used for 1,500 years before that. So January through December kind of year. For us, no one talks about the Gregorian calendar, but you know that a new year means, for many of you in business, it's a new fiscal year. Now, some of you may be saying amen to that. Uh, all of us are groaning a little bit. It's a new tax year, although I do think as Oklahomans we're getting a tax break of $123, so that's kind of nice. You can spend that $123 somewhere. But the Christian New Year actually started uh, at the end of November with the beginning of the season of Advent. And Advent, as I've been talking about the last handful of weeks, is um, meant to be this four-week period of repentance. Um, you know, we, we celebrate Christmas as everything being merry and bright, but Advent is actually a little bit dark. They call it like the little Lent. It's supposed to be a season of repentance and even fasting, the opposite of kind of how we actually popularly uh, reflect it. But Advent is, is, uh, ends with Christmas on the first day of Christmas. That's Christmas Day. And we're meant to have this 12-day-long celebration of Christmas, which uh, on January 6th uh, transitions to a season of Epiphany, which is a season of uh, celebration and feasting. But Americans really don't have any patience for seasons of fasting. Uh, we have no tolerance for it whatsoever. So what we do 
is we feast during a season of fasting. We celebrate Christmas all of December. And then by the time December 26th rolls around, we are ready to throw away all of our Christmas decorations, put them in the shed, put them in the attic. We're sick of seeing them because in, in the, you know, following a pandemic year, we've had them out since like November 1st anyway. And uh, we really don't have any appreciation for uh, the season as it's meant to be enjoyed. What we could do, which would actually be kind of fun, is if we preserved those four weeks of Advent and as a community we were introspective and reflective and repentant, and by the time it gets to Christmas, that's when we really start celebrating. So we hold off on all of our Christmas parties until the true season of Christmas or even Epiphany, which in the early church was an even bigger deal than Christmas. Uh, And that's when we start throwing all of our parties and we're partying into the new year. But as all of the forces of nature and culture and habit are working against us, that is probably never going to happen. And so this time every year, you're going to hear people like me who are church nerds bemoan how there are 12 days of Christmas, and everyone collectively says, we don't really care. Even so, today is the second Sunday of the season of Christmas. We, we still have our, our Christ candle lit, and uh, in reading through the lectionary, our texts are assigned to us, and the assigned text today leads us to the story of the Magi, the wise men, and the nativity that you probably already put uh, in the attic, you know, perhaps has the scene of Mary and Joseph with, you know, of course, the cow and the donkey and the shepherds, and maybe you've got the wise men uh, there too. How quickly uh, the Magi, the wise men, actually came uh, to worship the Lord Jesus, we don't know. Um, The text is suggestive that it could be anywhere within two years. Um, Herod was said to have ordered the the death of all of the little boys two and under in Bethlehem when he learned that that Jesus the Messiah had been born. So it suggests to us that it could have been within two years uh, that uh, the, the Magi may have come. Did they show up at the same time as the shepherds? Well, that's how it appears in our nativity scenes. I don't know if it happened in reality, but it does appear that they came to Bethlehem to present their gifts to the Holy Family. Now, if you imagine the, some of the original listeners, the original audience of this passage, the, the first generations of people who are reading the Gospels, there were a couple of cultural dynamics that would have been surprising or perhaps even shocking to them, dynamics that are largely missed or overlooked by us. One of the things that would have shocked or surprised early readers of this passage in the first few centuries was that first, the wrong people are sacrificially seeking the truth. The wrong people are sacrificially seeking the truth. The Magi are spiritual seekers that no one expected. Uh, When we read about the Magi, we're reading about foreign astrologers. The foreign part would have been a point of concern for many of the first, uh, audi- many in the first audience because they would hear that these are Gentiles, these are non-Jewish people. These are people who are not part of the chosen family of Abraham, God's special possession, and they've come to worship the one who has been born king of the Jews. They're foreign. But they're also astrologers, you know, magicians, and uh, the Old Testament teaches against things like that. Um, astrology is a biblical no-no. We're instructed to stay away from astrology, things like horoscopes and tarot cards. If you follow those social media accounts or read those books, burn your books, unfollow the accounts, like do away with those kind of things. Those are like a biblical no-no. Renounce it and be done with it. But the Magi are these foreign astrologers. 
They're reading the stars, the skies, to interpret the times, to try to discern what is God doing in the world. And I don't know how God spelled out in the stars that a the king of the Jews was to be born? Was it like a connect the dots kind of thing? And like they had to spell it out and the, like an arrow point? I don't know how it worked out. But they were reading the signs. They were reading the skies and something indicated to them that there was something special going on in Bethlehem that they needed to go and see. But I kind of wonder, how did it happen that God worked through these uh, extraordinary means to reveal Himself to these people? Well, it happened because God so wanted these people to be part of His family that He met them where they were to reveal Himself. You know, they weren't, uh, you know, habitually going to Jerusalem and consulting Torah. He met these people where they were, reading, you know, with a message written in the skies because He so wanted these people to hear the news about the King who was to be born. He left clues that prompted them to go on a spiritual journey where they might, might gain further revelation. And so they sought out truth at great personal cost. It's possible they came from Persia, modern-day Iran, on this great journey of many miles to come to a town that's of relatively you know, minimal importance. God left clues for them that prompted them to go on this spiritual journey. And God actually still does this today. God leaves clues. He leaves indicators. He leaves a cookie crumb trail for those who are interested to follow. Uh, my friend John Samara has connected us with the church in the Middle East and North Africa. And, and John and many of my friends who've done work in the Middle East talk about how it's, it's a very common occurrence in the Middle East uh, for Muslims to have visions of a man in white they find out to be the Lord Jesus. And, and, and whatever happens in that vision is so compelling that it prompts them to go and talk to Christians, often uh, Christians that they, they've never talked to a Christian before. They've never heard the gospel before. But God appears to them in visions. This man in white comes and it compels them to go on a similar spiritual journey. You can read books like Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. I think of, of, it makes me wonder, who are the spiritual seekers in our context that God might be reaching out to, but it's the kind of people who, because of their station in life or, or wherever, wherever they are, we don't expect them to be open to the things of God, but we should be. Who are the spiritual seekers in our context that no one expects, but we should be on the lookout for? I think about people like Eve Tushnet. Probably a lot of you don't know uh, Eve's name. Eve was raised in New England in this ultra, ultra progressive, like overtly pagan family. Never went to church. That's the last place on planet Earth she would go. Never heard the gospel. Was antithetical to the whole Christian evangelical subculture. In college, she was a, a lesbian and very like openly progressive, anti-Christian. And the Lord started to work in her heart, and she went to one of the last places she would ever expect to go, which was a Roman Catholic mass. And she went to mass, and the Lord began working in her heart. God began calling her name, and she did this thing that she would never have guessed she, she would do. She began taking the classes to learn, how do you become a Roman Catholic? 
ultimately, she was exposed to, to, to the, the breadth of the gospel and Christian teaching, and, and she became a baptized member of, member of Christ's church and submitted uh, to Jesus' teaching about all of her life, including her sexuality. And she wrote this whole book uh, that she called, called Gay and Catholic about her journey into the Christian faith and her journey into becoming a celibate gay Christian. You think, who would even think of praying for Eve? been acculturated into being against, uh, you know, Christianity or the gospel and things of God, and yet God worked in her life, and there was a, a cookie trail, a cookie crumb trail for her to follow. Uh, I think about Michael Kent. I got to meet Michael uh, about five years ago at a conference. Uh, we were both at a party, and neither of us knew anybody, and so we struck up a conversation, and um, Michael was a neo-Nazi. He had been. He had lived a hate-filled life. Uh, after, as, as he served time, his body had just become covered in images of hate, including this very bold swastika on the center of his, of his sternum. And uh, Michael was released from prison, and he was supposed to meet his parole officer, and one day Tiffany shows up at his door. And Tiffany is a very joy-filled African-American woman and a parole officer. And Michael opens the door, and behind Michael is this huge swastika. And Tiffany's like, what am I getting myself into? I met Tiffany that night, too. And through friendship with Tiffany, God worked in Michael's heart and had a massive transformation. And has told this story very publicly. You can find his story in the BBC and CNN, and they've got a couple of books coming out in the next few years, the fringe, this unlikely friendship and how God used Tiffany to transform Michael's life. And now he's having these crazy surgeries to get some of these images of hate removed or transformed into, into images of peace. You think, like, would you even think to pray? Would you think that's a lost cause kind of situation, and yet God worked in Michael's heart using an unlikely person. And I just have to believe that we could probably share the mic in this room. Some of us were those unlikely candidates of people for whom, like, the gospel meant nothing, but somehow, sometime, we heard something that compelled us to ask some questions. And I am just sure that there are people in your life, people in your neighborhood, people in your place of work, in your family, maybe even your children, who are those unlikely candidates who they feel like they are so far off, and yet they might be seeking and you don't even know it. I think one great thing that we could do as a community this year, it would be to deliberately pray that God would help us to see those people. Uh, Jesus, uh, after he was raised from the dead, the women come to visit him at the tomb and they said, he's gone ahead of you into Galilee, there you'll see him. And in a similar way, we, we appreciate that Jesus has already gone ahead of us. We just need to be attentive to the places where He's already present. We might pray this year, Lord, help me to see uh, the people that you're, you're inviting into your family. And maybe the first step of hospitality would be inviting them into our family, to inviting them to our family tables, or even inviting them to gather with our church for worship. The first thing that would have stood out and surprised or even shocked original listeners was, was that the wrong people were sacrificially seeking the truth. That's the Magi. The second thing that, that would have surprised or, or I would guess disturb early readers is that the right people are sacrilegiously suppressing the truth. The right people are sacrilegiously suppressing the truth. 
So we've got Herod, who is, is, is Jewish. He's consulting the leaders of the temple. And when they learn from the Magi that evidently there's to be a king born king of the Jews, they're, all, they're disturbed in all of Jerusalem with them. And Herod, feeling threatened in his power, orders the infanticide of all those children, two and younger, living in Bethlehem. And you have to think for, for people who knew the story of Israel that Herod's activity might have reminded them of the behavior of Pharaoh when he ordered that all the children of the Hebrews be thrown into the Nile River at the time of Moses' birth. And over time, the unthinkable has happened. Some of God's people have become just as wicked and depraved as the Egyptians. And many people, especially who've grown up in American evangelical culture, have been lamenting that a similar transition or warping has happened in church world in our country. We lament that the sad reality that for many people, we found God's people to behave even more worse than those who don't purport to follow the ways of God, to follow Jesus. It can make things way worse when, when believers do some of the things that we see. Like many of you have been following the rise and fall of Mars Hill, the podcast that is really like a cautionary tale for a growing church. It scares the pants off of me, truthfully. Uh, and, and one of the things that I've been just appreciating in recent years is that one of the dangers uh, of putting the title pastor in front of your name is that it amplifies your ability to hurt people. And many people in our country have been, in our world, have been hurt, but both by pastors who wear microphones on their faces and also just by other Christians who, uh, you know, would profess to be followers of Jesus and yet in the way that they live, deny Him, uh, make a mockery of the gospel. It's worse than unbelievers because we purport to follow in the way of Jesus. When in the church we, we stop seeking first the kingdom of God, and when in the church we stop seeking Jesus, we start killing each other, literally and figuratively. We start crucifying people. When we stop seeking Jesus, we start squabbling over power. Some of you have been in churches that have split because this group of deacons was against this group of deacons, or the elder board got together and the church split. When we stop seeking first the kingdom of God and stop seeking Jesus, start squabbling over power like Herod did. When we stop seeking Jesus, uh, we can betray our values in order to protect what we think are our rights. When we stop seeking Jesus in the church, we start complaining about cosmetic issues like programs or carpet or song selection. When we stop seeking Jesus, we can act like jerks on the internet or bullies on the cultural playground. When we stop seeking Jesus, we become cynics and critics instead of creative caretakers and joyful hosts to those whom God is calling home. Or when we stop seeking Jesus, we just get bored and apathetic as Christians. I think about, Emily and I were talking earlier this week about the parable of the sower, and, and Jesus says that in, in preaching the gospel, even him, you know, sowing the word liberally, he's counting on hopefully a 25% success rate. That even in Jesus' own proclamation of the kingdom, he's thinking maybe one in four get it with joy. He, he talks about the seed, those who hear the word and it lands on, uh, on the path and the birds come and scoop it up. Some people may hear a message of the gospel, but the enemy just, just swipes it from them and they never get a chance to respond. 
Some of the seed lands in, in rocky soil where it springs up quickly, but because it can't put down roots when the sun shines on it, 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 it just dies out. Sometimes the seed falls among the thorns. And the text says uh, the, the seed that lands among the thorns are those who hear the word and yet the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth chokes it out. And if I have a, if I have a first concern in a, in a largely middle-class, educated, affluent by the world standards, like thinking on a global scale church, if I have a concern about the people of Cornerstone in my own heart, it's that the, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth would choke out our response to the word. That we get caught up in cultural Christianity and kind of going through the rhythms, being vaguely religious but lacking the power of God. You know, being churchgoers and yet not people who know Jesus, my, my, my concern would be that the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth would choke out our response to the word and we would just get bored as Christians. When the church becomes a museum of what God did ages ago and not a seedbed or an outpost for the new things He's doing now, God's people tend to grow inward and grow calloused, or they grow distracted and the vibrancy that, that's meant to flow from a life of knowing Jesus slips away. But when we are seeking Jesus and seeking first the kingdom of God as a community and the lights are shining on Him, God does the work of keeping things fresh. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine and you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you remain in me, like the vibrancy, the life, the multiplication, the fruit is going to be there. When we're seeking Jesus, remaining in him and keeping the focus on him, the community is often enriched by the gifts of strangers. I think about what a joy it must have been to Mary and Joseph and maybe Elizabeth and Zechariah are in the mix, maybe some of the shepherds are in the know, when these Persian astrologers show up. Now, it was amazing when Zechariah had been silenced for a whole year. His wife was especially pleased by this. God, an angel shows up and silences him because of his unbelief and his, his aging wife gets pregnant. Amazing! Mary gets pregnant without intercourse, and everyone's like, that's not a thing. It's a thing, God said. This is amazing. God shows up. Jesus is born in Bethlehem because he's from the lion, the tribe of David. God's fulfilling his promises of this everlasting dynasty from David's family. Genesis 49, the ruler to come from the tribe of Judah and the obedience of the nation will be his. It's all really happening. They were amazed. But, but then these foreign astrologers show up and it just had to increase their faith. These magi come with, with costly gifts. They've come at great personal cost over this great distance and, and it had to increase their faith to make them think, yeah, surely God is doing something new. When we're seeking first the kingdom and we're seeking Jesus and we're keeping our porch light on, we're on the lookout for the people that God might be calling to himself, calling home, the church will be enriched by the stories of those whom God is making his own. We'll be given gifts from strangers. And I believe that there are people in the city of Tulsa right now, in spite of all the things that are working against people's openness to, you know, the church with politics and all of those things blending, in spite of reasons to the contrary, I believe that there are people in the city of Tulsa right now that God's been working on, 
And they're reading the skies, and they're, they're picking up some hints, and they suspect that God might be doing something. They might not even know where quite to attribute this curiosity, but something is building, some kind of curiosity for which they can't give an account. And I believe that God has uniquely positioned people like you and me to encounter those. And you think in our own fragile and imperfect ways, God has positioned you to be one of the bearers of the message, one, one of the, the people who can bring them home to the family of God. You can be a friend and a guide to those who are coming home to God's family, but we'll only be able to see them if we're keeping our eyes on Him. I also know as, as our church grows and, and the front door is always open that there may be magi in the room today. The people who have been following an impulse, like, oh, I don't want to go to church, but it's the first Sunday of the year. Maybe I'll start off on the right foot and come with a kind of curiosity. And you're seeking the one who's been born king of the Jews, or maybe you're just seeking peace because you feel sad when you go to bed at night, or you feel a sense of emptiness, feeling that something's missing. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's the way and the truth and the life. He's the true light that gives light to everyone. He's the Word made flesh who made His home among us and wants to make His home with you. So put your trust in Jesus. And that's the invitation for all of us, to put our trust in Jesus. As an imaginative exercise, I wonder if you were to go back to this text, Matthew 2, 1 through 11, and think about the different cast of characters that have, we've been presented with today and think, with, with which character or group of people do you most closely identify? It might be a bit like the story of the prodigal son. You've got uh, the benevolent father. You've got the son who's squandered it and is kind of wondering if he's got a place among in his father's house. And you've also got the, the critical older brother who's, who's judgmental of everybody. We kind of have this with, with Herod. Herod's heart has turned inward and it's twisted him and made him a mess and he's oppositional to the things of God. Is, is that you in your own way? Have you turned inward? Have you, have you, has your heart stopped looking out for what God's doing and you're just looking out for yourself? If that's you, I'd challenge you this year to make a habit of deliberately praying for other people or for groups of people who don't yet know Jesus. And, and be on the lookout for those to whom you can extend hospitality. If you know your inclination is to be like the older brother, to grow inward, you might make it your mission when we come to worship gatherings to deliberately sit with strangers and introduce strangers to the people that you know. Are you kind of like Herod and you've turned inward? Maybe you're like uh, uh, many of the people at the time of Jesus who just turned aside and they got distracted. Who's got time to pay attention to concerns about the Messiah? I'm just trying to like make ends meet. And maybe you identify with the group of people in the parable of the sower, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth are just choking out your ability to respond to the gospel. And the thing that is like testimony in your heart that something's wrong is this, just that you feel nothing. You just don't care. You're apathetic. And if it bothers you that you're apathetic, there's hope for you. That's good news. Maybe you just ask the Lord to disturb your heart, to stir up your heart in fresh ways. Maybe you'd be really diligent about, about trying to open the Scriptures this year, even if it's small, do, to do it faithfully. Maybe you'd, you'd be diligent about giving or confessing your sin or resolving to worship weekly when you just absolutely don't want to. 
And I think for all of us, and this is basically what we do on Sundays, and this is what we do when we receive communion, all of us are given this fresh invitation today to respond to whatever it is that the Lord's doing in your life. The author of Hebrews says, today, as long as it's called today, don't harden your heart. Or you could say, as long as it's called today, keep your heart open to the things of God. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you in some way, if the Holy Spirit is prompting you to pray that you would want to want to pray, that's a good prayer to start with. But for all of us to give some kind of responsiveness to the work of God, to help us to have the grace to keep our eyes on Jesus. The thing that I think perhaps more than anything else encourages me about this passage is that, you know, though many of the people of God missed it, they were, they were turned aside, and, and, and people like Herod had turned inward, God's mission still happened. God still did His thing. He's speaking through the stars to the, to the Magi, and God's family is growing. And at the beginning of the year, so many of us feel tempted to, to make it a great year by our own striving. And God's going to do His thing kind of either way. And wouldn't it be such a gift for us this year to work restfully, like resting in the good news that God is advancing His purposes in the world, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, as my bishop Todd Hunter says, superintending creation toward its intended end? Isn't it, what if we could work restfully and cooperate with God rather than feeling like we're employee number one and it's all on us to get it done? Today, as long as it's called today, let's respond to whatever grace God has given us. Let's not harden our hearts. Let's be open and attentive to the work of the Holy Spirit. And let's especially, for those of us who are following Jesus, resolve this year to keep our eyes open for those people who are unexpectedly seeking the things of God that we might be a part of welcoming them home into the family of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, th I think about the passage from Micah that's quoted in this verse, out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And Lord Jesus, our prayer today and as we begin a new calendar year is that you would shepherd us. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to pray, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing because he leads me. May we be aware of your, your shepherding leadership over us, Jesus. Would you tend to those of us who are hurting? Would you, would you bind our wounds? Would you care for us? For those of us who are, are spiritually hungry and thirsty, would you lead us beside still waters? Would you satisfy our souls? Would you bring us to a place of table fellowship with you, Lord Jesus, where we feel your intimacy renewed like we do when we catch up with a friend over a meal? And this, this year, Lord Jesus, would you guard us from those who'd want to attack us, the, the enemy of our soul? Would you keep us from times of testing? Our, our little fragile hearts can't handle it. Just shepherd us, Lord. God, I pray that there would be an acceleration of the work of the Holy Spirit in the city of Tulsa, and that we would be keenly aware of those people that you're calling home. So we, we pray especially, you know, for people who don't fit the mold, whether it's politically or, you know, uh, socioeconomically. 
uh, people that we, we are not inclined to like, perhaps, or our political enemies, so we're inclined to think. I pray that you'd help us to be attentive to those who you're calling home and help us to be friends and guides to them and, and, and hosts to them, welcoming them to the family table. And Lord Jesus, as we come to the table today to receive Holy Communion, I pray that you'll take these very ordinary elements, this little cracker, this little juice, and that you pour out your Spirit on it, Lord, and make it be so much more than just that, but it may be for us a means by which we experience the presence and the power of the resurrected Christ. It's in Him we put our hope and our trust, and we pray this in His name. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. May He turn His face towards you and give you peace.